Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Scott Henderson, co-editor of the book Comics and Pop Culture, Adaptation from Panel to Frame. The collection of essays was published in 2019 by the University of Texas Press. In these days of nonstop films based on comic books, this group of essays presents historical and social background information showing how comics have grown from their humble beginnings to become transmedial, appearing in many different artistic formats. In our discussion, Scott and I review examples of comic series that have made the leap into other formats, as well as how feature films became useful material for the comic books. We also talk about the importance of comics and their role in society as a way to allow cultural agency. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Henderson. Hi, Scott. Hi, Joel. Thanks for joining me. We're talking about your book, Comics and Pop Culture, Adaptation from Panel to Frame, and you're the co-editor along with Barry Keith Grant. So as we start to talk about it, though, I'd like to get a little bit of background, both for you and Barry, since he's unfortunately able to not join us, not able to join us, so that we can, the listeners can get a better idea of how you got to this point. I know that you recently got a promotion where you where you uh, teach, so it'd be great to get your background. And then, as they say, if there's anything you want to mention about Barry, that would be great as well. Yeah, well, Barry and I actually worked together for close to 30 years at Brock University. He actually was one of the ones who hired me back in the very early 1990s into the film program there. And Barry has a prolific background in writing, particularly on genre cinema. So sci-fi, horror, really any kind of genre into comic book films. And over the years, I mean, Barry and I talked a lot. We were, you know, I think avid card collectors, comic book collectors, uh, music collectors. So Wait, a lot, a lot of alignment between the two of us. So Barry has just recently retired from Brock as a full professor, and I uh, accepted a new job as dean and head of Trent University here in Oshawa, Ontario. So I moved about two hours away from where I was at Brock and uh, have rejoined actually my alma mater where I had uh, done my undergraduate work. Well, that sounds great. Um, so obviously from your description, you have pretty much made your entire career on um, dealing with media. Have you written other things? I mean, I'm assuming articles, but have you written other books or anything, or is this your first real foray into that? I did another book with two of my other colleagues at Brock on Canadian television about a decade ago, and otherwise I've contributed lots of chapters. My, my work goes all over the map because I do film, I do popular music, I've done the stuff here. With comic books, I've done some stuff on YouTube, and it's early origins. I think about a year or two out, I kind of spotted that and thought, this is looking a lot like early cinema to me, with the kinds of materials that were happening, the way it was commercializing. So I I looked at that. I just had a piece out on Frank Zappa's 200 Motels, if you want to really dig back to some uh, early 70s craziness. So I I, I have an all-over-the-map kind of uh, approach. What led to this book? Obviously, uh, you guys are co-editors, so it's a series of uh, of essays um, by a number of different people. But where did you decide to come to this in, in your uh, career? 
I would say it's probably a hallway conversation about three or four years ago between Barry and I. He just finished some projects uh, on science fiction film and some other work and was starting to think about what his next collection would be. And we got talking about, you know, comic book adaptations, how many there were and how it was a really sustained genre. Right. I mean, you know, other genres tend to ebb and flow, but the comic book adaptations from the late 90s, early 2000s and all the way through, it was it was running and running. And we thought there's really something going on here. And, you know, there weren't a lot of books yet on the market that looked at you know, particular case studies and a little bit of the longer history. I mean, it's it's vast. I mean, we, we really barely scratched the surface with this book, even though we had great contributors. But it really began with that kind of hallway conversation that this would be a great thing to start looking at. How did you get your um, contributors together? Did you, were these, I assume some of these are people you know from your career or um, where did we pull all these people together from? Yeah, the most were actually people that we knew. I mean, you know, a lot of edited collections, you put out a kind of call for papers and see what comes in. But what we started by doing was seeking out people that we knew had been writing on comic book adaptations, who might have an interest, who would have different perspectives, because we didn't want to end up with, you know, 10 great submissions, but all on Spider-Man or, or, you know, pan on Black Panther. We, you know, we wanted to kind of pre-curate by looking for people we knew were working on some interesting and diverse approaches, you know, and also, you know, it wasn't always about comics to film, it was sometimes film to comics. So people who could kind of look historically. So, you know, you'll find chapters in there looking at the kind of seventies boom when things like the original star Wars came out or, you know, even 2001, a space odyssey where there were Marvel comic book adaptations of the film. So it was nice to have both perspectives in there. One of the good things to me is that these days it's not impossible to be able to actually read many of these actual comic books. Both DC and Marvel have their um, packages, their digital packages that allow you to read older issues and back issues of of uh, comics going back quite a bit different areas. So it's actually now possible to read a lot of these things, which I think makes it even easier to make comparisons and to discuss them. Absolutely. I mean, this, the material is out there, right? Whether you can find the full comic, as you say, on these platforms or images drawn from them, they're no longer lost. Or if it was in my case, they were lingering in my closet because I still, I can dig out the original Star Wars Marvel adaptations, right? The, the, the big, lar- the large form ones that came out. And I think there was a Battlestar Galactica I dug out at one point, a number from that era. But as you say, you know, they're, they're more readily available. And I mean, that works for pop culture across the board. And this is one of the things that's changed. When I started in the 1990s, I mean, there were films that I'd love to show in class I couldn't get in any format. Right? I would have to order the one print that was, you know, up here in Canada that might have been around going from university to university. Whereas now we have this kind of abundance where we can pull to the past and make these comparisons, whether it's between films or, as you say, comic books or other adaptations, some of the television stuff that's out there that's finally starting to see the light of day, which is just great for scholarship. And um, as I say, I've, there's actually a couple people in your book that I've talked to, well, one in particular, Liam Burke, uh, who was one of your contributors who wrote the book, the comic book film adaptation. I interviewed him 
years ago when that book first came out. So it's great to see someone else who's a, a fan of Liam's. Yeah, no, and, and Liam's one of those people we reached out to because we knew his work and his book is a, an absolutely terrific, you know, insightful approach to this topic. And that's partly why we kind of tried to focus more on specific adaptations and case studies because he had done such a great job of kind of covering the terrain in terms of understanding how these things work and what some of the kind of wider cultural history was around this. And, you know, his, his contribution in here does exactly that, right, in terms of kind of looking back to the ways in which comic book tie-ins, even back in the, the serial days of the 1940s, 1930s, were kind of connecting comic book and really what we now call transmedia. And that's something that pops up so often in here. Right. I mean, right through the Black Panther and the kind of ability to buy Black Panther masks in the stores, the way that comic book adaptation is spread well beyond just film and into all sorts of other areas of pop culture. In fact, that was the next thing I wanted to discuss, that term transmedia or transmedia storytelling. Those are the different ways it's referred to. But give us a quick definition of, of what transmedia is. You know, I've always read it as, you know, the ways in which the, the text extends beyond the borders of, you know, whatever media it happens to be in. So, you know, the, we used to have things kind of locked in boxes. You'd watch a film and that story world was completely self-contained. And when the film ended, everything was wrapped up nicely. The couple kissed and they walked off in the sunset and you felt everything was resolved. To me, transmedia really suggests that these storylines ebb and flow and arc outside of specific films. So, you know, it works really well for audiences and obviously from a commercial side building audiences, but you need to have read the comic books. You need to maybe watch the television shows. You might need to play some of the games that are associated or some of the other texts that are out there that fill in the gaps that, you know, make up the kind of full universe that's existing. And, you know, the Marvel universe is perhaps, I think, the, you know, the most renowned or the most fully fleshed out of those examples. Right, because we know that Superman first appeared in Action Comics in 1938, and as you mentioned, there's a serial for Superman, there was uh, animated cartoons for Superman, and while that obviously fits the definition of transmedia, they really weren't related. I mean, you didn't have to have seen all of them, all the film, the entire serial or the entire, all the cartoons to understand because back then uh, the comic books weren't serialized the way they are today. Yeah, but, you know, in some ways we can look back and it's kind of an earlier transmedia because, you know, all of those variations on Superman kind of built up the myth, right? We came to know what we expect from that character because we saw them in all these different iterations. And there was a consistency there for, for that type of character. And, you know, I often think of Batman as a good example, right? That the Adam West 1960s version with its kind of campiness and clownishness that we think is so distinct from the Dark Knight era. But there's flickers that, that show up there, right? And, you know, the Tim Burton versions of the kind of late 1980s, early 90s certainly kind of link all that together by taking some of that more campy comic world and, you know, darkening it. And then it gets a lot darker when we get to that Dark Knight series. But there's, there's still connectivity between all of that. And I have to admit, I remember when that series premiered. Um, 
course, we had black and white TV back then, so the first time I actually saw Color Batman was in the feature film they did between the two seasons, and um, or three, I forgot when it was in the total, but that was the first time I actually saw all the colors, which was a very major point of the whole thing was to the brightness. But I also remember that we started to see some of the stuff from the series into the um, TV show and, or, and vice versa. So, for example, Batgirl starts to appear in the comic books and then turns out to become a major character even to the present day. Barbara Gordon as Batgirl is still around. No, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, you know, there are different narrative threads that develop and very often we'll see later texts or later adaptations that then pull specifically from one of the earlier texts that they think, hey, that was an interesting idea. It's part of, you know, the backstory. Let's pull it in. And going back to what we talked about with these collections, these digital collections, the one thing that DC has done was on their pro platform, they actually have video as well. So you can watch the old uh, Superman series from the 50s and um, not necessarily a lot of everything that's available, but like they've got the cartoons too. So that actually helps a little bit. I may even have, they may even have the Superman uh, um, uh, serial. So uh, it gives you even now a chance to see some of these things very easily. Not that a lot of them weren't already available, like we've talked about in other formats that are easy to obtain. Yeah, and I, th I mean, I think it's terrific that we have, you know, this kind of access. And it, it gives us a better understanding to me of, you know, both cinematic but just cultural history. I mean, it's, it's sometimes forgotten, and I think it's important that we have these texts available. So let's talk a little bit about the book is separated into two parts. Part one is issues and debates, and part two is panels and frames. I want to talk about a few of the essays, but before we do that, how did you come up with this division? I know you talk about it in the introduction, but uh, it might be worth talking about it here a little bit here as to how you decided to divide the, the two parts. Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny that one's called issues and debates, because I'd say that one of the biggest issues and debates we had was how are we going to define up this collection? Because, you know, we, w we went through different iterations of mapping different chapters together and thinking, how will they fit in here? And, and what are we looking at? Are we looking at historically? Do we want to go chronologically? You know, what, what will work best? And we thought, well, we really had a kind of a group that, you know, called on some of the larger issues around adaptation, right? How do we understand adaptation? How does it take different forms? So as I said, you know, Liam's chapter, looking back to those early comic book tie-ins, but you've got stuff that raises questions about genres, about representations of sexuality or absences, but also even, you know, script adaptation, which Julian Hoxter's chapter really looks at in terms of, you know, how do you take what's on the comic book page and turn it into a script that will work the way it needs to on screen. So we thought, okay, we've got enough there that's kind of looking more broadly at the issues of adaptation. And then we had a lot of chapters that were really looking at specific texts in quite a bit of detail. So we realized, okay, let's get into that analysis. And we debated lots of terms for that, but ended up at panels and frames because we thought, well, the way in which these things are encapsulated and kind of captured, you know, is one way of understanding them. And I mean, lots of them exceed the frame or the panel that they're in, but it, it felt a nice way of kind of thinking, we're looking really closely at the text in this point. 
So let's take a look at some of the essays. Obviously, we can't cover every single one of them, but they're all, you know, there are a few I sort of want to bring up. And then if there's any in particular you want to mention that you haven't already, we can do that too. Um, the first one I wanted to mention is the one from part one, from Adaptation to Extension, A History of Comics Adapting Films, 1976 to 2015 by Blair Davis. Um, this is where the idea that uh, comics were actually being produced, adapting films that were already out or were coming out. Yeah, and there's a, you know such a long history there. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, my own, digging through my own collection, finding the Battlestar Galacticas in the early Star Wars, but you know, I'd, I'd forgotten as, as Blair gets into, you know, the, the golden key adaptations of Disney stuff that you know was really film adaptation to comic books. So, I mean, there was a whole you know, lots of Donald Duck stuff, Dumbo is in there, you know, there so there was a, a kind of lengthy history of taking and kind of extending and, and finding ways of reselling the product to the same audience, which I, I think is a fascinating way of looking at it. And you mentioned the gold keys, and I remember those pretty regularly. I see them. And really, if you could think about it, uh, and she mentions it as the um, issues, you know, the classics illustrated, which didn't uh, adapt films, but adapted books. And so it was the same concept of bringing uh, something that was already done or already created to a different audience in a different way. Yes, and comic books, you know, it's interesting to go way back. I mean, early, early cinema adapted a lot of comic books, but a lot of comics and early cinema adapted from other forms, retelling well-known stories. And I, I really like what Davis does in there in terms of, you know, also looking at some of the aesthetics. And I love the stuff on the Kirby Crackle and the way in which, you know, that kind of illuminates some of the stuff from the films really well, that there's a, there's a way, you know, not just of like, literally retelling the story but also finding some sort of visual way in comics of recapturing the energy of the film and that works really well in here too and the other thing you see is that the comic books when they're adapting film tend to build on them they're not pure replicate you know replication of them there there's going to be some additional so for example even going back to the first Star Wars film, if you read the comic, it lasted, I think, six issues, the original um, adaptation of the first film. But they added a lot of the scenes that were not in the film and may have been in the book and things like that. Yeah, because a lot of these early, especially the ones that kind of come out simultaneously or close to the film release, I mean, they were working from the shooting script very often. Right, and they would have visuals from the set, and they would know what things needed to look like, but they were trying to recraft the story in their own way. And you know, there are scenes that were cut. And I remember there was also a Star Wars novel adaptation I remember reading back in 77, which had lengthy scenes that never appeared in the film, and those appeared in the comic books. So you've got that kind of element as well, where you're actually seeing a little bit more of the story that's missing on screen because of the source that they're actually working from when they do the adaptation. In fact, the book adaptation, which works again with the transmedia idea, um, is 
It's officially listed as written by George Lucas, but it was ghostwritten by Alan Dean Foster, famously. Um, it has uh, an early scene that there's actually a deleted scene on one of the video uh, of them uh, with Luke going to see, and he sees Biggs. And then, of course, there's the scene that's been reinserted later in the film where he sees Biggs again, and, you know, on Yavin. So um, those scenes, in some cases, actually do exist, and, and we can actually see them. But there's no question that the, um, the comics built on material that they had. Of course, then after they finished the six um, issues for the first film, they went off on their own. Exactly. So you start getting stories that are, you know, outside of, you know, maybe not outside of canon, depending who has control. But, you know, in some cases they would be, and sometimes they'd just be goofy side stories. You know, Chewbacca and R2-D2 in escapades for a kind of side story that's not going to feed any main story, not going to upset anybody who's concerned about canon, but works well as a comic book. So, and there's been lots of different adaptations that have worked in different ways. Some very close conjunction with the creators. I know that the recent Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic books have kind of really tried to build on the Buffy verse and extend it in, in an official way, right? Taking the story beyond the end of the television series. Whereas, you know, some of the earlier comic books in the 70s were really telling side stories using licensed characters. So it's, it's, there's so many different and interesting avenues that these go down. Yeah, we saw that with Star Trek as well, where after first off we had gold key versions of Star Trek comics, but then once the film came out in, the, in 79, we started to see books and also comic books based on Star Trek. And then, of course, uh, Marvel, once they finished up with Star Trek, then uh, Dark Horse began, or Star Wars, excuse me, Dark Horse started doing uh, Star Wars tie-ins, which seemed to be considered more tied into the actual universe because there were crossovers with games and films or and uh, other books with that. And then finally, now Marvel has it again that started up right when um, Force Awakens was about to come out. So we see that there has been a better attempt, uh, especially since obviously Marvel is owned by Disney, which also owns Lucasfilm, to sort of keep everything together. Yeah, I mean, now we really are in that kind of transmedia era where, you know, often these properties are owned by the exact same company so that, you know, now there's a consistency and they're really trying to kind of maintain that story. It's interesting to know, you know, the different publishers have such different approaches. I mean, Gold Key had a such a different kind of audience than something like, you know, Dark Horse Comics does, which is going to go for something, you know, with much greater fidelity. And, of course, Dark Horse tended to be more not officially all of them but adult comics they were meant for the older uh the young adult or teen you know in their 20s people who were still reading comic books back in that period where it suddenly became good or uh, nothing wrong with reading comics and even if you're an adult um and that continued on with the whole thing so uh, the idea of being more serious with what they were doing versus the the bunny that's in um, the original Marvel Star Wars series. Yeah. 
So you mentioned uh, Liam Burke's chapter, Take the Movie Home, how the comic book tie-in anticipated transmedia production. And we got that a little bit from Davis's, um, the idea that part of the reason for these comic book adaptations was so that you could actually take the film with you. Of course, this was back in the day when home video didn't exist, so the only way you could see the films were going to the theater or waiting till they showed up on television. Of course, pay cable, HBO started not too long around this, in the, you know, not too late past uh, Star Wars, so uh, eventually these other films would start to appear there, but um, this became the only way you could really keep track of the film because you couldn't see it anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just, you know, once stuff left the theater and I mean, you and I grew up in an era where stuff, you know, Star Wars played well, well, well more than a year in theaters, you know, because there was no follow on outlet. It wasn't at that point going to show up on video or DVD or be streamed. So it was kind of a, a really different way of approaching. And I, I have to be honest, you know, as a kid growing up in the 70s, you know, a lot of the classic films that I was probably too young to see, I got to know through reading things like Mad or Cracked Magazine's, you know, spoofs of those films. And and to this day, you know, I, I think as a, as a film scholar, you know, my, my first introduction to The Godfather was probably in the pages of Mad, not, you know, by going to see it in the cinema. And so that kind of adaptation, the different audiences that it was reaching, you know, has a profound effect just on how people perceive and respond to some of these texts. And I mean, it ties back to what we were saying today about the goal of key, which was always, you know, skewed towards a much younger audience. And perhaps even with the Star Wars stuff, an audience that might have been too young or might have had parents who weren't going to take them to see something like Star Wars, but could get a simplified version of the story as a comic book. Star Wars, it opened in 77 at the beginning of, in May of 77, and was, as you say, it was in the theater for a good year, then it disappeared briefly, and then they brought it back out just a year before or so before Empire came out, and that's when they had added the episode four at the beginning of it. So uh, clearly uh, Lucasfilm at the time knew that they had an audience because you couldn't get it any other way. Exactly. So, you know, you, you would get that repeat audience. I can't, I, I can't count how many times I saw the original as a kid. I just kept going back and back and back to the theater because it was just, you know, I don't remember why I went the first time. I don't recall it being that big a deal. I, you know, I'd go to my local cinema, whatever looked cool that was coming up, you'd watch. And I just remember being blown away that, that first opening shot and, you know, wanting to keep going back. So, you know, the notion in 1977 that, hey, I could own this somehow or watch it at home didn't exist. It was only a theatrical release. And so when that sequel came out, as you say, you know, they'd run the original again, which intriguingly is what I do. You know, I'll, I'll, I haven't gone to see the new film and I'm going to probably see it early next week. But this weekend I'll be watching the previous two to get myself back up to speed and get my mind in the right space. There's no question that we want to go back and watching Star Wars when I got to episode four with my watching, I still couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I, you know, that movie is over 40 years old and yet it still holds up for the wonder it can cause. It absolutely does. And that, that that's what was amazing at the time. Like to just, you know, 
was such a different thing on the screen than anything we'd seen before. So I don't want to make this whole thing about Star Wars, but, you know, it, it does sort of, you know, go through. But we obviously know that there are non-superhero comics that have been made into film, even though it's not always obvious. Um, Road to Perdition, for example, that was a comic book, and yet there's most people who probably saw it in the theater probably didn't necessarily know that. I mean, there's an example of a film that was made not superhero outside of normal comic book genres and yet um, made into a film by Spielberg and um, doesn't really, it's not obvious that it's a comic book movie. Yeah, and then there's, you know, especially with the kind of rise of graphic novels. So, I mean, there's some material in the book on, you know, Persepolis. And, you know, there's another film that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people saw as a film hadn't read the graphic novel in the first place. I mean, you know, you got things like American Splendor, the Harvey Picard story, which is, you know, a lot more self-evident because it kind of, you know, references the comic book process in the very opening title shots. But, you know, there's a lot of non-superhero stuff out there that has been adapted. Let's come back to that. That actually was on my list, partly because I grew up and lived most of my life in Cleveland, Ohio. So I read, I've read American and Splendor and saw the movie, and I was looking at it as, a, you know, in some ways, knowing the neighborhoods and the areas and the way of life. I found it to be such an interesting series because it was so different from anything uh, that you would expect on a comic book. I think it came out, the first issue came out in 76, and um, it was such a completely different concept that uh, I think the film, I don't know if it gets enough credit or it just clearly shows um, how American Splendor was, it actually shows you the comic book concept. I mean, the different authors, the I mean, excuse me, the different artists he used and how he looks different and going back and forth between the television, you know, the, the Letterman show, sometimes it's him, sometimes it's uh, the actor, Paul Giamatti. I mean, it goes back and forth, and it's just an interesting way to show the transmedia event of the whole thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it was a, it was a fascinating film, and it, which really, I think, captured the essence of what the comic book was doing. And again, that's, to me, when, I, like, I love adaptation, and I love the way in which adaptations work exactly on that level, that it's not just about fidelity to story, but it's also about fidelity to mode and to the way in which the story needs to be told and can be effectively told. And I think American Splendor is a perfect example of exactly how that can work and capture the mood when you're changing media formats, right? So, I mean, it, I guess it could have been an animated film and you could have kind of copied elements of you know, the original comics, but it works better in being about adaptation itself and being about this kind of process of storytelling and comic book storytelling with, with enough references to framing the comics to kind of effectively convey that overlap. In fact, there are animated shots in the film that show how different artists showed him. So yeah. you had some of our crumbs and you had some of the other artists so you could see how he looked different um, from story to story. Because, of course, American Splendor, the average issue would have five, eight different stories, some of them maybe only one page and some of them longer. 
but in many cases they weren't always going to be drawn by the same person. So there are differences in how he looks from one story to the next. In fact, one of the things I know that there's been a couple of collections of American Splendor stories that that were published, but it I don't think the entire series was ever published. It's not available to be for anybody to see unless you have the individual issues. And I think that's unfortunate. It would be great for people, especially comic book fans and people like we've talked about with film and things, to get a chance to read all of them just to get a better sense of what he did. Yeah, and just to understand, I mean, the the complexity, but the intelligence behind it. I mean, I think it's it fits with to me seventies comics actually, because you know I I was a big fan of that kind of late seventies Marvel era where you had characters filled with self doubts and long pages in Spider Man comic books that were not about action, but you know especially the Peter Parker spectacular series that were about inaction. Right? I mean, where you, you have Peter kind of mulling over all the you know, difficulties of his life. And it's interesting that, you know, American Splendor was kind of doing that and kind of, you know, completely excising the superhero aspects. And I was, whenever I read one or when I look at the st- various stories of American Splendor, I'm always trying to find neighbor what neighborhood, because you can see addresses, you can see the names of some of the stores on on the outside, so obviously the Coventry area where many of his stories uh, of Cleveland Heights uh, take place, you can recognize streets and everything else. It's just unbelievable how um, he captures everyday life, especially for somebody like him who uh, was intelligent, but uh, incredibly intelligent and and well-read, but unfortunately never made it outside of his little cocoon working as a, uh, uh, at least until the, you know, later on in his life. Yeah. Until that reassessment happened. It's interesting. I have, you know, the Scott Pilgrim comes up in, in the collection as well. I'm, I'm from Toronto and, you know, I'm someone who read the Scott Pilgrim comics going through and looking and I, I recognize that spot, even though it's treated very differently without, you know, the kind of realism of American splendor. I mean, it kind of takes Toronto and turns it into a bit of a fantasy space. You know, there are a lot of very recognizable icons and bits of iconography and, you know, minutiae of kind of everyday life that creep in there. That is, a, you know, someone who grew up there, I can keep constantly pointing out and I've taken, you know, friends. In fact, Julian Hawks, who has contributed one of the chapters in here, I, I took him around Toronto on a, a Scott Pilgrim tour, and we went to hit most of the major sites that were still there and point them out to him because he was a fan of the comic and kind of wanted to find those locales. Yeah, the chapter you're mentioning that uh, about Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim's precious little texts, written by John Bodner. So that is one of the chapters in the second part. Um. Uh, Going back quickly to a part one one that I wanted to mention, adaptation and seriality, comic book to television series adaptations. This is where we start to talk a little bit about, uh, this is an example of talking about how the comic book and an actual TV show can intertwine in some way where there's more to, there's more of a connection than we may have seen in Batman or Superman earlier. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I mean, it's interesting the way in which you know television, and particularly streaming television, but I think you know 
also network televisions. A lot of the stuff on the CW has kind of taken comic books and, you know, adapted them into longer forms, into these kind of season-long story arcs, which work quite well. Again, as we talked about earlier, extend the kind of universe out much further. But also, again, I mean, it's a different mode of storytelling, right? I mean, you've got more time on television. You've got more character development. That's one of the unique things, I think, with streaming, this kind of shift that we've seen in popular entertainment. And we wanted to make sure we had a chapter that was kind of taking this outside of just comic to film adaptation, but thinking also about the other formats in which these adaptations are happening. And, you know, in this particular case, and it was interesting with, with Vint looking at something that had appeared initially on Amazon, and that it gave it that opportunity, right, with a kind of power series to look at how a different format and a different mode of, you know, consumption was also impacting the way in which these texts could be understood. Speaking of which, we've got DC and Marvel both have their own television series um, programs going on. As you mentioned, CW is the main home for for DC, and they've actually done very well with TV versus frankly, what they've done with film, where there clearly were some have been issues with some of the films they've come out, but the TV series are, you know, it's just unbelievable how popular they've been and how well they've been able to keep them intertwined and, and how the characters on the different shows relate to each other and appear together and separate, where Marvel have tied it actually all the way into the films where you've got TV series that came out, including Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which clearly tied back into the Avengers and earlier and has continued to have some, uh, and some of the other series they've come out with, including um, Agent Carter and some of the ones, as you mentioned, on streaming, which are all considered part of the overall Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, which actually feeds some of the backstories. And for, again, it's, it's, it's a reward for fans, I think, you know, when you're part of this entire universe. I mean, from a commercial side, yes, it it increases consumption because now you're going to watch the series, you buy the comic, you'll get the other kind of ancillary materials that might be out there if you really want to be a completist and have the full story. I mean, you know, the films and the adaptations still work autonomously. We can all go and see an Avengers film and have a great two and a half, three and a half hours in the cinema. and come out and enjoy it, whether we know all of the little bits and pieces, but for those who are fans who can make all of those different connections, there's that extra reward there. And I think it's a, it's a really clever way of both creating a compelling universe. I think just an interesting narrative structure and, you know, very, very interesting texts to be watching, to be reading, to be working with. But at the same time, you've got that commercial appeal where you can get people who want to, get all of the different pieces together. Speaking of which, we'll skip ahead, although I've got some other ones I want to talk about, to Jeffrey Brown's chapter on Black Panther, um, which actually is the last uh, essay in the book. And what I found interesting is I had been watching, trying to see the Marvel films in order, but Black Panther was getting such great reviews. I said, I can't not see this, even though I hadn't seen, for example, hadn't seen... Winter Soldier yet, or or Civil War, which both tie into Black Panther, at least in the overview. 
And I still was able to understand most of it. There were a couple spots here and there where I didn't specifically get everything. And actually, if you think about it, it goes all the way back to um, the first film where we get, I think, going all the way. I think Vibranium is mentioned all the way back in Iron Man. Uh, if not, it's very early on they mentioned Vibranium. So <laughs> I know Captain America for sure, obviously. Uh, so you can see how everything ties together. Yeah, I'm always amazed when I sometimes go and rewatch something. Maybe maybe that's one of the values of the streaming services, the things like Disney Plus, because they know that people subscribing, they've seen most of the the films on there, but want to watch them again. And exactly like you, I'll suddenly get a reference and go, "Holy cow! I had not made that connection before, but now that I've seen this later one, I, I'm, I'm recognizing this." Or I'll read something in between, go back to a comic book, and think, "Oh." that's where this character came from or that's what that's referencing and i i don't i, I get excited I, i'm the one who's there holy cow i remember reading this back then i know exactly which character this is where they came from how they were there i you know i it, it tweaks that little kind of cultural memory that we have which i i find very exciting when you can make those connections yeah i'm thinking a couple of different spots there's one film before black panther that shows a map of the world, a shield map, and there's supposedly a pointing to a place in Africa that is clearly supposed to be Wakanda, but we're still a while away from it coming up in the films. And then also the fact that in Winter Soldier, where there's a scene where Captain America and Black Widow are looking through these old archives, and supposedly in that, there's an archive that showed that uh, uh, the Winter Soldier had actually killed um iron man's parents but we don't know that until the next film so it's the way that they've worked to tie everything together is nothing short of unbelievable yeah like i i can't imagine the kind of back room or notes on the wall kind of thing to piece all of this together i mean you've got the films themselves are complex enough as a singular text and then to think you've got to kind of be pre-thinking so many of these different links in here and that we're there the first time, and this isn't this isn't Lucas going back and getting back to start retweaking Star Wars, and you know Han shoot you know shot first. We all we all agree on that, but you know making those little changes. These are things that were built in from the outset, knowing that the payoff was coming somewhere way down the line. And it depended on making good films because it never would have gotten through twenty two or twenty three films. If they hadn't been good, if people weren't willing to go to see them, of course, Iron Man started off so strongly that it really helped the whole thing. I mean, it was just such a strong film and a strong opening to make the whole thing get going. Yeah. And yet you've got, you know, again, thinking back to the Black Panther, you know, clearly a much bigger audience for Black Panther than for so many of the other films in the series. I mean, maybe not the, the final Avengers films, but, you know, Clearly, there's a lot of viewers who are going because the singular story still captured their imagination. There was something about it that worked. And I think, to me, that's part of the longevity of the current wave of kind of comic book adaptations. It's, you know, And it comes up in Aaron Taylor's chapter on genre. I mean, are comic book films a genre? And I mean, they've got aspects of melodrama in them. They've got sci-fi at times, but, you know. They can often be throwbacks to the Westerns. They're kind of war films. They're action films. There's romance. I mean, really, I think they work because they're pliable enough to 
pull together all sorts of different genres and different interests and tell different sorts of stories that will work for different audiences. So, you know, the issues around race and representation within Black Panther and, you know, maybe I think current issues, particularly in the U.S. around race, it it kind of hit a zeitgeist and it kind of captured people's, you know, attention. And here was a text that was dealing with contemporary issues, even though Black Panther's origins are, are much earlier, right, as a, as a comic book. So uh, it's one of the reasons I find that, you know, this genre, if you want to call it that, or this mode or this kind of just sequence of films of, of comic adaptations just is, keeps running and running. And if you think about it, we also had comedy. I mean, obviously the two Guardians of the Galaxy films are incredibly funny in parts of them. For Ragnarok clearly went for the humor aspect in fact it even shows up in sub search engines for comedy they'll sh it'll show up there and they're meant to be that way and so there's nothing wrong with that i mean even uh, the ant-man movies had some comedic factors which sort of take them away and it's one of the reasons i think people get it wrong when they complain about comic book films or, or you know these kind of films as being taking away from real quote-unquote real movies there's a lot of one of the big differences between the Marvel series that we have now and maybe some of the older adaptations from like when Superman appeared in the 70s, in 78, um, one of the reasons is they take it so seriously that they've got great actors. I mean, you've got people like Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer and all these other people who they appear because they want to. I mean, you, they don't have to make the be in these movies, and yet they do. So I think they deserve the fact that uh, people are taking them seriously when they're making them. Yes, and they're, they're serious cinema. They're actually telling, I think, often very big, significant stories, and, you know, they have a resonance. It's clear, and I mean, it's, you know, the same way in which comic books were largely dismissed, right? Yet, one, they're simply a great reading tool because they encourage young people to read, but so many of the stories, you know, going back through the Marvel stuff, they were complex and they were sometimes dark and deep and sad. It wasn't just all kind of laughs and you know, children's entertainment. So there was excellent, excellent writing embedded in a lot of those Marvel and DC storylines. Let's talk uh, briefly about your chapter in this, just because I'm talking to the actual author now. Uh, Agency and Intertextuality, Tank Girl, Subcultural Aesthetics, and the Strong Female Protagonist. I think it's an important chapter, partly because of that last part. Um, obviously, Tank Girl is not from Marvel or DC. It's, it's one from the independents, but as the name implies, it's a female protagonist, which I think we need to make sure that we don't ignore or make sure that we know there have been attempts or they're working towards making sure that we get more and more female protagonists in these films. And Wonder Woman did pretty well with that. But um, what uh, Tank Girl's actually older. So uh, what led you to decide to talk about Tank Girl? I, I always really liked that film, and I always thought it was, you know, seriously underrated. I mean, I think, you know, there's some goofy elements, right? Uh, you know, Malcolm McDowell's Kessley character, and you've got, uh, you know, I see as a kangaroo, and it's, you know, there's bits that people kind of pick up on and think this is bizarre, but I always thought underlying it was a, a very strong kind of feminist message and a very strong 
female character who, and I, I always like using that term agency because it's not just a representation. Oh, it's a strong woman and we can all watch her, right? She acted on, on what she wanted. And I, I always had found the film's use of music interesting, right? The Courtney Love kind of, you know, curated soundtrack that went with it. But a lot of the musical references and stylistic references, even in that film to classical musicals, really created to me a very strong character. And I thought the film was, you know, too readily dismissed at the time. And it does have a cult following. There are a lot of people who do really enjoy Tank Girl as a film, but I particularly had liked it and thought it was kind of underexplored. So I've looked at it in the past in the context of understanding musicals and their kind of contemporariness. And I saw it as a bit of a, a contemporary musical because there's a lot of music numbers. But in this case, I wanted to kind of align it with what had been going on in independent comics in the kind of late 1980s, early 1990s, when the original Tank Girl comic appeared. And, it, you know, it was you know, Alan Moore's Halo Jones, and it was right, the Love and Rockets series that really, you know, had kind of captured my imagination back in the day. And I saw a lot of alignment aesthetically. So that, that was the end. Well, that's good because like I was saying, uh, we need to make sure that we continue just like uh, some of the chapters that deal with uh, sexuality and race, uh, the comic books cover all those things. And when I remember reading comics, there were times where uh, we would run into those kind of issues in the actual comic books and even back into the 60s and going forward. So uh controversy and current events are not missing from comic books no they're not i mean one of the things that you know if i was self-critical of my chapter is that you know all three of the authors of these books or all three of these books i guess are multi-authored but it, you know it's male authorship which you know i probably could have spent a little time in the chapter pointing out that you know i think all three comic books create strong women and they create an interesting perspective and all writers, all the writers have kind of addressed the fact that that is what they were intending to do. And Alan Moore is quite scathing about the way in which the comic book industry skews male. But I probably could have pointed out that it's an interesting, you know, itself critique of the industry that the space for strong women's voices had to come through male writers in the late 80s, early 90s, that there were not yet a lot of women comic book writers being able to kind of break into the scene. And fortunately we've seen some change with that and that's it, you know, slowly happening, but it's, it's an interesting aside what I was writing about that these were strong characters. And yet here we still have male authors. And I think that's going back to the films. That's what makes movies like black Panther and wonder woman. So good because they had agency. We have a female director for Wonder Woman. We have African-American writers and directors for Black Panther so that we don't, and it's not just done to say, okay, well, we want to make sure we do this right. It's a matter of let's do this properly. And the best way to do that is to bring in people who might and give them agency for these particular films to put themselves into them. And they've in both cases, they turned out so well that it clearly was the right way to go. Yeah, Tank Girl had you know Rachel Talali as the director, so we you know again you know it's a, it's a woman who's kind of taking the comic book and recognizing an agency and 
you know, again, when I when I analyze that film, I find lots of moments of cinematic agency, the way in which the camera is used, the way in which music is used, you know, who controls the kind of gaze within the film and who gets to, to do the looking and initiate the action. And it's Dank Girl. And that I think having a woman director was key to making that successful. I know we can't cover everything, but is there any of the other um, essays that I didn't bring up that you wanted to point out in particular? As I say, it's depressing that I can't, we can't talk about every single one of them, and there are so many, but uh, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? I mean, you know, I I feel bad if I I left people out. That's what I'm afraid of, so I'm afraid to do the same thing. Yeah, Yeah. but one for me that were, you know, I was really interested, you know, I, I mean, I know Julian Hawkster, but, you know, he teaches screenwriting and it's a really different perspective for me because you know i'm not a filmmaker i've I've always been an academic i came out of english and history i had a strong interest in texts and the kind of you know cultural context in which they emerge so to have someone who's writing from a screenwriting perspective and kind of understanding how scripts work and how that adaptation process happens between the source material and what we see on the screen, for me, it was just an eye-opener. And I, I, you know, That was just, for me, a really interesting chapter to read. I was a huge fan of Aviva Briefel's work on Night of the Living Dead and kind of looking at ways in which the graphic novels, again, it kind of harkens back to some of the earlier stuff we were talking about, the way it extends the narrative, right? By telling some of the backstories of the other characters who showed up in the farmhouse in Night of the Living Dead, we didn't see how they got there. It kind of retells and remaps this and reworks it. It's a great way of, I think, working with the original text, which in this case was the film, and turning it into a comic, but still being faithful and expanding the universe. And, you know, the stuff that gets in there about the kind of creating of maps and really starting to structure this out is it's both fan base kind of stuff, but it, it turns it into a real living, breathing text. And I really enjoyed that. You know, because we talk about that, as I mentioned before, with novelizations, which became very big uh, in the same way as comic books, but the novelizations of feature films. And because we were starting to see more and more original films that weren't based on some other material, uh, Star Wars being the obvious, we start to see these novelizations come out. and, And it's the same idea where you can bring the topic and of course night of the living dead sort of works the same way it came out as a film it does not have there was a novelization and there of course was this was comic book but it started as a film and so that becomes a, a more interesting way to look at the whole process of adaptation yeah that's i mean to me again that was at the kind of chords it's interesting because i you know as i said i came out of english and history and I got into film via thinking about adaptations and, you know, from book at that point to film and now from comic books to film. And I think, you know, it, it adds that extra interesting dimension because, you know, so many people lament when they see a, a book adaptation that it doesn't match what they picture in their head. Right. And you know, it's, it's not quite the story that they thought. Well, now in comics, we've added the pictures in our head, right? We've got to somehow make sure that there's some sort of, fidelity between what we've seen on the page and the story that was there and then what we see on the screen and i mean you know i can't help but think of that sonic the hedgehog film that was coming out of people's reaction to the trailer that that's not what sonic is supposed to look like Mm -hmm. right that it has to look correct and that you know 
it's important to us. And of course, as somebody who studies history, I care about films that are based on historical events and those, I mean, it seems now it's become the norm. It, I just think there was this period of time where we didn't see a lot. Now, every Oscar season, there's at least four or five films that are based on historical events. And I don't know whether that's just because Hollywood has found those to be ways of getting good, you know, acting jobs for people or, or what. And so uh, it's still the same concept. Did they get it right? How do I see it? And we see the same thing with comic book readers and vice versa. Exactly. And I, I always find that, I mean, again, I just said I was English history split and I've got right. that same interest in history and, and not necessarily getting it right. Does it have to look exactly like it did or do they have to be wearing the exact right clothes it's it's getting the feel right isn't it it's about kind of making sure that is is this telling the story properly and giving the kind of right perspective on this and the right feeling as opposed to having to be exactly as it was which would probably be pretty boring yeah i think back over the film lincoln not that not to get too far afield but it's an example for me we don't know what lincoln sounded like we can't be sure that daniel day lewis got it right I don't care what descriptions you've read. Is it seem right? That's the best you can do with it because exactly. there's just no recordings. So we've got pictures and you can try to produce, reproduce those, but you can't do any better than that. Yeah. And it's, it's weird. It goes back to our kind of transmedia discussion, thinking about those early Supermans and, you know, the serializations and the comic books, and the TV show. Yes, they didn't tell the same cohesive story, but they built up our sense of what the character was supposed to be, right? What he was supposed to look like, what his mannerisms would be, how he would sound somehow so that, you know, later ones, we get to the Christopher Reeve ones, they had to have echoes of all of that in there. That's similar to what you're saying for Lincoln. There's a kind of perception of what we think Lincoln should have sounded like that Daniel Day-Lewis has to capture. Speaking of Superman, going back to the radio serials, it was the same actor who played both Clark Kent and Superman, Bud Collier, who later went on to hosting TV game shows. But it was the same person originally that thought they were going to have two different actors, but Bud Collier was able to present two different voices. And of course, we know Christopher Reeve did the same thing, so it clearly harkens back to back then where you had to have the voice... Um, you have to have a different voice for Superman versus um, uh, Clark Kent. And, of course, the TV series in the in the 50s did not really vary those kind of things at all. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, but it threw me off as a kid. It's the kid. You can't tell it's him. Yeah, no. <laughs> come on. <laughs> at least in the, uh, the 78 film, they tried to come up with some way to, to say, well, maybe it's not as obvious and therefore... Uh, people wouldn't necessarily know. So now that you've gotten this promotion, obviously, is this keeping you away from studying or are you still teaching at least? Or or how are you keeping up with uh, your interests and, and do you have other things in the pipeline going forward? Yeah, I still am trying to do a, a little bit of work, you know, on the side as research. I mean, it is an administrative role I'm in, so it keeps me a little bit busier, but I'm working on a piece on music, musical films, you know, popular music and film right now. So kind of looking at the history, the way in which 
popular music has been represented in film. So not really looking at musicals or just soundtracks, but the way in which music is kind of embodied in films. Also looking at some stuff, you know, again, it shows I'm all over the map. I'm looking at the Red Wedge movement in the 80s in Britain, the kind of post-punk political movement that was aligned with the Labour Party, and looking at some of the failings of when musicians try to go political. So as I say, I'm all over the map. Well, that's great. Well, this has been a great discussion. I'm really glad we had a chance to uh, talk finally. I hope listeners don't feel like we spent too much time on one topic or another because the book definitely goes all kinds of ways. It inc- there's chapters dealing with manga and anime. There's chapters dealing with um, sexuality, as I've already mentioned, and it's not just Marvel and DC. We've got plenty of independents talked about, so I hope people do reach out and read many of the, and read the essays and, and get some more uh, ideas and details that the book concludes. So thanks a lot for your time, and uh, I really enjoyed the book. Well, thanks very much for the conversation, Joel. It's terrific. Thanks, Scott. Thanks to Scott. His book helps to bring new scholarship to adaptation and its role in artistic creation. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.